us pray. King Jesus, um, that song is our mantra. Today we are desperate for you. We are desperate for the presence of your spirit. We are desperate for the perfect atoning work of your son. Lord, we are desperately in need of you. As we sang in the song prior, Lord, we are prodigals who are prone to pick pig food over you. But in your grace, you hold us fast. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for your work on our behalf. We thank you for your continual covenant-keeping love that comes after us when we don't come after you. And so, Lord, be in our midst today. Draw us ever so close to you. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can remain standing real quick while I read the word. Gotcha. Um, We're going to be in Joshua chapter 9. I'm just going to read the first six verses today. So, here we go. Let me move that away so I don't echo me because it's awkward. All right, Joshua chapter 9, verses 1 through 6 says this. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Prezerites, the, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai. They on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and said to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country, so now make covenant with us. The word of God for the people of God. You can be seated. And so, to kick us off this morning, I want to give us a brief recap of where we have been. And so, so far we have been, we've seen the Lord lead the Israelites into the promised land. And in chapter 9, introduces the second main section of the book of Joshua. So, just to give you a quick breakdown of where we've been. Chapters 1 through 4 were the preparations for the conquest, which ended with the crossing of the Israelites um, into the Promised Land at the Jordan River. And so, the second section, chapters 5 through 8, recorded their first victories, which started with the setting apart of the Israelite man, if you remember back in chapter 5, through circumcision, Poor guys, right? Um, So it started with that, and then it led into the fall of Jericho. Um, They had a little victory. They had a defeat at Ai because they didn't obey what the Lord told them to, which then led to a covenant renewal and a victory at Ai. And chapter 8 ends with a covenant renewal on Mount Ebal. And then chapter 9 through 12 is going to launch us into this next, um, this third section, which takes us deeper into the conquest of the Israelites. And it culminates with a list of kings that's going to be defeated in chapter 12. And so, but we're going to see today, like we have seen some already in chapter 7 with a dude named Achan. Is that we're going to see that where the Lord's purposes are being carried out and his purposes are being fulfilled, the enemy is going to come near to steal, kill, and destroy because that's what the enemy does, right? And so... The of the book of Joshua teaches us that these events, when the enemy comes near through these pagan kings, through these pagan kingdoms, and ultimately through our disobedient hearts, it's all a part of a larger cosmic spiritual reality and war that's taking place. Okay, And Joshua's conquest is this earthly outworking of this cosmic war. And so 
Keep in mind that this part of the world where these nations have been or are, are, are at or have long been under Satan's control, right? So over centuries, the sins of the Amorites had multiplied, and now the proverbial pot of wickedness is overflowing. And so all of this is an assault not on the Israelites. It's an assault on their creator, God, who made them for a specific purpose. And so Joshua's conquest is this divine initiative to cleanse the land of its sin. But in doing so, that does not mean that it comes without diabolic resistance and conflict. And so the Israelites at this stage means they have to focus on one supreme task that the Lord has given them. The Israelites are to be ready to fight, be regularly seeking the Lord through prayer, and they are to be obedient to everything that God has commanded them. So keep in mind, where the, where the Israelites have gone, if they follow the Lord, the land has been given to them. So keep that in mind. So God has given them the land, but it's not just presented on a silver platter, right? And this is a picture of what it looks like in the life of a believer in our fallen world. There are no advances spiritually without conflict and challenges. It's just reality. But the beauty in what we're going to see is that even when the enemy, who is very much real and who is very much active, is near and comes to destroy God's people, he is ultimately a creature who is subservient to God's will, he is subservient to God's judgment, and he is subservient to God's eternal condemnation. So be hopeful in that. But whatever this bit of advance quote-unquote advance, that the enemy has given. He has only allowed it so that God's greater purposes, God's greater glory, and God's greater authority might be displayed. And so that kind of kicks us into where, we, where we're going. Follow your heart. Follow your heart. Just by a show of hands, how many of you have ever heard that phrase thrown out there or have thrown out that phrase out there? No, just follow your heart. Just got to follow your heart. Just got to do that, yeah? Yeah, the majority of the room, right? And so we see it on pillows and stores. Literally, me and Heather, I went out uh, Black Friday shopping, I think, with her last year. Horrible idea. Uh, we went out and, and on a pillow. I remember it was a huge pillow in this store in Midtown. Don't remember the name of the store. But it said, follow your heart. And it had the trendy little arrows that were big last year that were all over your houses. And so we see it on pillows. We see it on T-shirts. We give that advice to our children. Oh, you just need to follow your heart. You need to do what your heart desires to push you to. You need to do these things. And we build it up like it's a good thing. We, we, we give the advice to our graduates, either high school or college. You, just, you need to follow your heart's desires and where the Lord would have you to go. You need to follow your heart in that. So we hear it in work. We hear it in school. We hear it in our music. We hear it on TV. It's the mantra of our culture. And so we hear this advice all the time through all kinds of outlets, but is it really good advice to give and or listen to? And so through chapter 9, I think this is going to give us a picture of what it looks like to really follow our hearts. What happens when we follow our hearts? And what we'll see and what we're going to find is that follow your heart might look cute on a pillow. It might sound like a catchy little cute phrase to tell your kids and graduates. It's horrible theology and it's terrible advice to live by and to give. And so, the interesting thing that we're going to see, and I want you to remember this, we're going to see this through both those who are distant and those who are near to the Lord. We're going to see it play out in both the Israelites and the Gibeonites, both God's people and the pagans, okay? And I think what we're going to see is there are truths that we can see about ourselves 
and that we can learn about ourselves from both God's people and the pagans. And so, here we go. First off, the first thing I think we see, we see it in the Gibeonites. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. Following our hearts leads to the fueling of our selfish nature. Verse 1 says this. As soon as all the kings were beyond the Jordan in the hill country in the lowland, all on the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, blah, 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 all these people heard of this. They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and I, and they acted on their part with cunning. We'll pause there. So all the surrounding kings formed an alliance. There's all these kingdoms that the Israelites are about to go into and about to annihilate. These kings are, are like, okay, obviously we need to form together and to create a greater army to, to war against these guys. So we see this, this formed alliance happening to, to war against these people for their kingdoms. But the Gibeonites in verses 2 and 3, they heard what had happened at Jericho and at Ai. And their hearts are motivated to be self-seeking and to be manipulative. Okay? To war against God's people and war against God's purposes. And here's what I want you to see. In chapter 10, verse 2, next week, we'll read about, more about the Gibeonites. But what you're going to see in verse 2 of chapter 10 is that, the, is that Gibeon was, quote, unquote, a royal city. So they had great wealth, great money. And it goes on to say, all of their men were men of war. They had a great army. So the Gibeonites have a little something like to fight for here. Like, hey, we got all this stuff that we want to hoard and we want to keep for ourselves. We don't want to lose this. We don't want to lose our army. We don't want to lose our men. We don't want to lose our stuff. And so their hearts are motivated to be self-seeking and manipulative in this moment. And you can even see how this plays out in the hearts of the pagans against each other. And so, so we see all these other pagan nations forming an alliance. And what do the Gibeonites do? They look at them and say, you guys are idiots. We're not going to join you. We're not going to fight with you or fight for you or be with you. We're going to go be manipulative over here, man. And you can forget you. You can go die if you want to. And so, does it sound familiar? I'm going to keep saying that over and over. Sound familiar? Looking at this history, don't, don't, pull yourself out of this, don't pull yourself out of this narrative. We war for our stuff. We war for our kingdoms. And we'll do whatever it takes to secure it. Second thing I think we see. I'm going to try to fly through this because I want the application. I want to have some time to see what it means for us. Point number two, I think we see this. Following our hearts leads to deception. Verses 4 through 15. So the Gibeonites now have this scheme to dress the part and to disguise themselves to make it look like they traveled from this distant place to save their skins and ultimately save their stuff, right? And so, so they, they have this manipulative plan to deceive the Israelites, to sneak in, and hopefully if we can fool them, we can get them to make covenant with us so they can't kill us. That's what they want. That's what they're warring for. And see, Gibeon, like I already said, it was an important city with all these other small dependent towns around it. So it could have easily defended itself just as any other nation out there. But it was, in, it was their thinking that was outside of the box of the other Cana the pagan regions. And so their thought was, why would we walk into conflict when we can just lie about who we are, disguise our sin, and slip right through the back door. 
sitting a little too close to home for me. And so, the Gibeonites know what's happened at Jericho and what's happened at Ai. Did they know about what God commanded the Israelites concerning them and the rest of these pagan nations that, that he told them in Deuteronomy 20, verses 10 through 18? Let me just remind you of what God said to do with these people. You can find this in Deuteronomy 20, verse 18. It says, You shall save alive nothing that breathes. You shall devote them to complete destruction, so that they may not teach you according to their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, little g, pagan gods. So that was the reason why the Lord didn't want them to make covenant and peace with these people because they were going to infiltrate in the the Israelite camp and bring with them their pagan idolatry into the heart of the Israelites. And so God had set them apart for something greater than that. So did they know about that? They probably did know about that. That's why they're trying to be deceptive. And so we see God had commanded the Israelites in Deuteronomy 20 verse 15. He commands the Israelites this, that they can offer terms of peace to a city before attacking it. Provided, keyword provided, that it is a city, quote, very far from you and not a city, quote, of the nations here, like Gibeon. So Lord said to the Israelites, okay, you can make terms of peace with nations that are far from you, but not the nations that are near who worship false gods, who worship, have these false idols. You need to go in there and cleanse them of their sin, a.k.a. annihilate them. And so, <clears throat> and so like Gibeon, those close to, the, uh, to them are to be destroyed. Gibeon was literally about 20 miles away from where the Israelites were camped out in Gilgal. 20 miles, we're talking. Okay? And so, this is why the Gibeonites claim that we have come from a distant country. And they provide their phony evidence of it. So look with me in uh, verse... Uh, where I don't even know where I'm at. I'm sorry. Verse 4. And so they acted on the part with their cunning, and they went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins and worn-out and, uh, worn and torn and mended with worn-out packed sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes, and all their provisions, their food, were dry and crumbly. And so <clears throat> they get these worn-out sacks, they get these packed shoes, they get these busted-up clothes, and they get this old food to add to their story. Do you see the deceptive nature of sin? It's just building and building and building and building. And they go to great lengths to hide and disguise their sin and their sinful nature. Sounds familiar, right? They don't stop there, though. When questioned about who they were in verse 8, they start to flatter Joshua. Look with me in verse 8. It says this. It says, Then Joshua said to them, Oh, I'm sorry. They, being the Gibeonites, said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you? Where do you even come from? And they said to him, We come from a very distant country. Your servants have come. And so they start to flatter Joshua. They start to speak up to him. They start to speak to him. It all sounds good and, good and convincing. And then they try to convince him even with their bread, man. They said, our bread was warm, but the journey we've been going on, it was so long that it's turned crumbly and moldy. It's building on their story, man. Lie after lie after lie. So what do they do? 
Did Joshua and the Israelites act on their evidence that they see, act on the evidence that they hear, that their senses and their logic tell them to do? Or are they obedient to the law that was given to Moses that he gave them back in Numbers chapter 27 verse 21 where it says this. He gave very specific instructions to Joshua about what he was to do when the book of the law doesn't cover the details of a particular circumstance. I.e. what's happening in the text. This is what he was supposed to do. It says that he being Joshua shall go and stand before Eliezer the priest who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim which is like casting lots. That's what that means. Before the Lord. And doing that will provide authoritative direction on which way that they should act or what they should do. That's what he was supposed to do. So, so what do the Israelites and Joshua do? Do they buy into the flattery? Do they buy into the approval of man? Do they buy into what they can see with their eyes, taste with their mouth? Our hearts like flattery, right? Our hearts like approval. Like, I want to be approved by you. Like, I want to be flattered by you. That's what my heart craves. Our heart desires these things. And we see it play out in verse 14. It says this. If I can find it. So the men, being the Israelites, took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And takes it a step farther in verse 15. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. We see the sad reality that the Israelites took in sampling the provisions without seeking counsel from the Lord. Joshua and Israel walked by sight and not by faith. Sound familiar? No one asks God what they should do, man. Nobody seeks God in this moment. Nobody, nobody. And this is what happens when we follow our hearts. Deception, self-confidence, self-exaltation, arrogance, deceitfulness. That's what our hearts leads us to. And so, if the enemy doesn't barge through the front door, you can better believe he'll attempt to slip through the back. That's what he does. He's deceptive and he's subtle. And so Israel makes a covenant. Feel the weight of this. Israel makes a covenant before God with a pagan nation. And Israel went ahead depending on their own senses, depending on their own wisdom, and disregarded seeking the Lord, the one who has brought them to where they are. Lest we forget, it is the God who brought them out of Egypt, who had made them cross the Red Sea, who had brought them through the Jordan, who had defeated Jericho, who had defeated Ai, who was going to eventually defeat all of these kingdoms, this covenant-keeping Lord. And what did they do? They didn't even seek Him in this moment, man. They didn't pray. They did nothing except eat the bread. And so, here's the reality that this text shows. There's two types of sin. There's the sin of commission, 
The sin of commission is doing what we shouldn't do. We usually hang out there a lot. I know I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to do it. You know, that's, that's what we do. The sin of commission. Well, there's also this thing called the sin of omission. The sin of omission is not doing what we should do. And friends, the sin grenade of omission is just as deadly and just as damning as the sin of commission. James 4.17, we just walked through the book of James. James 4.17 says this, Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. That's what it says. And the Israelites in this moment are guilty of not seeking the Lord, but rather being prideful and resting in their own understanding. They knew they should have sought the Lord, but they didn't do it. And so, this goes to show us as well that this guilt and this deception in our hearts of sinning in the mundane is just as damning and just as deadly as sinning in these monumental moments. Keep in mind, they had just, they had just witnessed the sin of commission at Ai, right? Where they, took, where they took of the treasures that he shouldn't have and it cost men their lives. That was a big moment of commission. Well, guess what? Now they've let a whole pagan nation in to their people group by one simple decision. of Eating some bread and making a covenant and not seeking the Lord. And so, that goes on to show us the third reality of following our hearts. Following our hearts leads to great remorse. Great remorse, verses 16 through 27. It says, <clears throat> well, I'm not going to read it because that's too much. <laughs> Verses, uh, verse 16 through 27 leads to remorse. Deception comes to a rude awakening when God's people realize what has happened. I will read verse 16 and 17, though. Look with me there. At the end of three days, <clears throat> at the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, being the Gibeonites, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now the cities were Gibeon, Seraphirah, Seraph, I can't say that, Beeroth, and Kareth, Jerem. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Do you feel the weight of that? When they realize what they have done, they've made a covenant before God with this pagan nation and now they can't do anything to destroy them. And so, the covenant's been made. They discover who they are, they, that they're indeed their enemies. They've signed a deal with the devil, essentially. Do you see the deceptive nature of the enemy trying to weave in through this deception? And not only does it, does it cause the leaders remorse, but it causes the people remorse. Look with me in verse 18. It says, But the leaders said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord God, the God of Israel, now we may not touch them. <coughs> Oh, I, I got tongue-tied. Hold on a second. I'm at the wrong spot. Oh, then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. Catch that. After they'd signed this covenant, then all the congregation murmured, murmured against the leaders. So not only did it affect the leaders, but now it's caused distrust and broken community amongst the people. What have you done? Why have you signed this covenant with our enemies? What are you doing? see how this plays out and there's this brokenness from following our hearts but it's not just the Israelites so that's the remorse for the Israelites there's also remorse for the Gibeonites look me in verse 22 then Joshua summoned them he said to them why did you deceive us saying we are very far from you when you dwell among us because we want to save our skin bro 
doesn't say that. But now, therefore, you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, i.e. slaves, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. So the Gibeonites might have saved their skin, but now, for generations and generations, their future would be submitting as slaves to the Israelites as punishment for their deception. There's great remorse. You might have saved your neck, but your kids, kids, kids will be a slave because of what you've done. There are real consequences for following our deceptive hearts. There's real practical consequences. Yes, the Lord gives grace, thank God, which we're about to see. But there are real practical day-to-day consequences for following our hearts. And so here comes the application for us. Lest we walk away from here thinking this is a great history lesson about the Israelites, what they did, and these sneaky little Gibeonites. Let's not miss about how our very nature is wrapped up in both the Gibeonites and the Israelites. We war for what we want. We war for our heart's desires. We look out for ourselves and we'll do whatever it takes to secure our belongings, to secure our people, to secure our things, and hoard whatever resources to make our flesh comfortable and gratify ourselves just like the Gibeonites. We will follow our heart's desires and sin against our brothers and sisters in our decision-making, and it causes strife, and it causes brokenness in our relationships, and it causes our community to be skewed just just so we could eat some bread and and to rely on ourselves causes shame and it causes remorse and not to mention I I can just speak for myself I can't speak for you but I'm often quick to not seek the Lord in my day-to-day mundane decisions but we see that even in the mundane decisions has huge spiritual implications so we get comfortable with our sin and we allow it to deceive us in following our hearts let me take you back to the garden of Eden in following our hearts Our first parents bought into the deception that God was holding out on them, right? Let me remind you, they were in the garden. There was a tree there that the Lord said, do not eat from this tree lest you die. And the subtle deception of the enemy comes in. It's very sneaky, very subtle, right in the back door. Not to the front door, right through the back door. Did he really say you couldn't eat of that? Why would he hold out on you? What's he holding out on you, man? You just need just take it. You'll, you'll know what he knows. You'll be who he is. Subtle. Don't miss the dangerous, deceptive nature of our sinful hearts. It's just one little bite of fruit. It's just one little thing. It's just one little decision. It's just one little thing. The sinless Savior, God incarnate, had to be crushed for one little bite of fruit. Don't miss that. Don't miss it. The sinless Savior had to be crushed for that. And following our hearts leads to death for us. Physical death. That's where our hearts lead us. And and for those who don't rest in the finished work of Christ, it also leads to a second death, your spiritual death. But not only does it lead to death for us, but it also led to death for God Himself. So, and it's because 
Our hearts are inherently evil. Our hearts are inherently deceitful. And our hearts are spiritually dead. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 talks about how our hearts are deceptive and evil above all things. Let's just see what Matthew chapter 15 verse 19 says. This is what Jesus says about our hearts. It's probably important to listen to that guy. Uh, It says this. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. You don't find that on a pillow in Lifeway. You don't find that there, man. And so that's the reality. That's what our hearts are. That's what our hearts lead us to. And don't miss the reality of this. You might be like, that's great for Adam and Eve, our first parents. I can't help what they did. God incarnate was crushed for your impatience at the red light last week. God incarnate had to be crushed for when you belittle your spouse and not loving them as Christ loved the church. God incarnate had to be crushed for the arrogance in your prayerlessness. God incarnate had to be crushed for not giving grace to your kids that one time. God incarnate had to be crushed for the greediness with your time, your energy, and your resources that one time. God had to be crushed for our pride. He had to be crushed for our lives. He had to be crushed for the one little look at that website behind closed doors when nobody was around. He had to be crushed for our lack of resting because we think we can do it without Him. He had to be crushed for our lack of standing up and saying something when we know that we should have don't miss the reality of this for us tiny sinful deception leads to huge spiritual implications so Israel's problem like ours is that they looked and that they were enticed by sin and they disregarded beholding the covenant-keeping God who was with them, their Lord. What do you mean by that? I feel like that's a lot of our problem. We look instead of behold, like we sang about. We come here on Sundays and we look at who Jesus is. Yeah, you're good, you're good. Thank you for what you've done. You're good, you're good, you're good, and we leave. And maybe we look again at him when we go to community group, if we've even gone that far. We look at him again, oh yeah, God is good. Thank you for community. Yes, yes, yes. And we go on about our business. We need to stop glancing and we need to start gazing at who Christ is. It doesn't just need to be a Sunday and a Wednesday, a Sunday and a Sunday. We need to, we need to come and celebrate Him here, but we need, to, we need to gaze and to be asphyxiated on Him through His Word and through prayer and seeking His face. We will never be able to... We'll never be able to war against our deceptive nature of our hearts until we are captivated and we behold the glory of God like he's taught, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 10.31 where we eat and we drink and we do everything for His glory. Until that becomes reality, we'll never war against our, the, uh, the enemy in the daily rhythms. That has to be reality. And so our hearts are broken, man. Our hearts can't be fixed. We need new hearts. And that's what the Lord gives His children. Ezekiel 36.26 talks about how the Spirit comes and He takes dead hearts of stone and replaces them with hearts of flesh that craves what the Lord craves, desires what the Spirit desires, and causes us to worship with our lives. This just goes to show you this whole narrative that sin shows no bias. The pagans and the Israelites had the same issue. They need new hearts that's just reality here's the gospel truth God could have done two things with both the Israelites and the Gibeonites 
in this text and and in history. The Israelites, he could allow them to be crushed by all the enemies that they're about to face in chapters 12 through 21. He could have been like, I'm sick of you. You keep prostituting yourself away from me. You keep going to lesser things. You keep turning away from me. You keep breaking covenant with me. And it would have been holy and right and just for him to say, I'm done. And let them be defeated. What does he do? He gives grace to Israel in defeating these pagan nations. And he gives them the land that we're going to read about in chapters 12 through 21. And we're going to see his grace play out week in and week out when they go and face these nations who are greater than them. And he gives it to them. Because he's a God who keeps covenant with his people. So, with the Israelites and like us, he loves them despite them. And then we see the grace, truth, was so rich play out with the Gibeonites. So what could God have done with the Gibeonites? They should be wiped out, like Deuteronomy talks about. Should be wiped out so their pagan practices can infiltrate. He he should annihilate them, just like I, just like Jericho, and just like the rest of these kingdoms that we're going to read about. But... And it would have been completely right. It would have been completely holy. It would have been completely just. And he would have been completely good for doing any of those things. But the Gibeonites, in verse 27, says, Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water to the congregation and the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. So the Gibeonites continued into Israel through the generations. And if you go and study history, this thing called the Babylonian exile happens. And they come in and the, the, the walls around Jerusalem are destroyed. And then we, we come to this book and this guy called Nehemiah, which we've walked through the book of Nehemiah. And in Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 7, we see this guy named Melatiah the Gibeonite. And men of Gibeon who were amongst the people of Israel, rebuilding the wall in Jerusalem. What does that mean? The enemy intended the Gibeonite deception, this whole act, to come in and to destroy Israel from within. If I can just get these pagans into God's people, they can start their own false worship, which can lead these Israelites astray, which I can make an advance in that. The enemy brought them in, hopes that that would happen, and that that, it would threaten the worship of the living God. But what does God do? He took what the enemy meant for evil and uses these human agents to feed the altar fires in the temple and to keep the water well supplied for the cleansing rituals so his people could worship him. Do you see the grace in that? What the enemy meant for evil, God turned it for his glory and worship. That's just good, man. And God, he doesn't stop there. He even causes the Gibeonites, these agents of deception, these pagans warring against God's purposes, to be rescued temporally from their lives being spared, 
but also eternally by grafting them in and making them, people, uh, making them members of the Israelite community. Because now, centuries later, we're reading about them in Nehemiah, how they've been grafted in and are part of the Israelite family. Do you see the richness of that? We see these Gibeonites submitted to the Lord. They're given a new purpose and they're grafted into God's people. That's our story. And it's the power and the scandalous reality of the gospel. Deceitful slaves to sons in whom he delights in. That's good news. Van, you can come on back up. That's the scandalous gospel of grace. What the enemy meant for evil, God's sovereign hand turned it for good and for worship. Scandalous grace. And so believer, let me start with unbeliever. Unbeliever, what does this call you to? I believe it calls you to bow your knee to Christ's lordship. You realize you can't save yourself. You can't. There's nothing that you can do. You, you cannot do anything to save yourself. Repent of your sin. Rest and trust in the finished work of Christ and His life, death, resurrection, and ascension on your behalf. And you, be th- you may be thinking, dude, you don't know who I am. You don't know what I've been through. I'm too far gone. And I would ask you to consider the Gibeonites who were warring against God, who were pagans against His purposes, that He looked at and said, You are mine. And if you are within the sound of my voice, and He is calling you, you could be His. He saved their souls and He brought them into His family. If you'd like to pray today and talk more about that, I'll be down front. I'd love to talk to you and pray with you. Today could be the day of salvation. Believer. What does this cause us to? I believe it causes us to behold our God. And to behold your God, you first have to realize the depth of your depravity. To realize the depths and the seriousness of our sin and to repent from the reality that we are prone to wonder, that we are prone to, seek, to, to not seek out the Lord, that we are prone to be self-seeking, self-confident, to be arrogant, to not think that we need Him. And to realize in that moment that the Lord in His grace and His loving kindness continues to keep covenant with us that we cannot break and we cannot escape. That's the reality. Why? Because the covenant is bound by the perfect atoning work of Christ on the crucifix. It's covered in His life and His death and His resurrection and His ascension. And it's a covenant love that's so deep that He was willing to die for you. And it's a covenant wide, love so wide that it's as far as the east is from the west that your sin will be remembered no more and that He will delight in you as a friend and claim you as a son. That's good news, believer. So behold the covenant keeper God who doesn't walk out on his wayward kids. Because man, if I was God, I would have left myself a long time ago. And so what does that cause us to? Causes us to worship greatly at the table. Remembering that it's only through the blood of Christ. And it's only through his body being broken. That a covenant love like that could ever even take place. He had to be crushed for our deceptive hearts. He had to be crushed so that we could even have new hearts. Let me pray. King Jesus, thank you so much for your love. Thank you for keeping covenant 
with us when we like to prostitute ourselves away from you. We're quick to run. We're quick to not repent. We're quick to not seek your face. That's our story. Lord, by your grace, claim us. Your Holy Spirit crushes our hearts of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. Thank you for that. So Lord, pray if there's someone in here that doesn't know the reality of that covenant love, Holy Spirit, would you draw them today? Would you reveal to them the depths of their depravity, reveal to them their deceptive nature, and draw them into covenant with you? Lord, help us behold you. Help us to delight in you. We love you. Proud of your saints in Jesus' name.